Welcome back to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems. I'm Jihi Jolly. On this show, we talk about how to apply SGI Nichiren Buddhism to the challenges of daily life. Today, we're talking about mental health. This was one of our most requested episodes to date, so thank you so much to everybody who has emailed requesting us to cover some aspect of mental health or mental illness. Before we begin, I want to explain how the episode is structured, because it's a little different than usual. We've divided the topic into four parts, which you can listen to all at once, or you can check the show notes for the timestamps to skip to the section that most resonates with you. Though I do think all these stories are worth listening to. In part one, we discuss what the Buddhist definition of health is and how we're defining mental health and mental illness or mental health challenges for the purposes of this episode. We do this through a conversation with two mental health professionals who happen to also practice SGI Nichiren Buddhism, therapist Mindy Milam and psychiatrist Bora Kolak. Both have different backgrounds in the mental health industry and were able to share some insight on the parallels they see between their personal Buddhist practice and their professional experiences in the field of mental health. In part two, we hear the incredible story of a young woman named Yuko Miyama about her own mental health struggles, specifically with PTSD and depression. In part three, we talk to Maya Gunasaharan, young women's leader of the SGI USA, about what the Buddhist perspective on mental health is, and also what it takes to care for someone, whether it's a loved one or someone in your community who's struggling with a serious mental health issue. And finally, in part four, we provide 10 takeaways based on Buddhist wisdom if you're currently struggling with your mental health. It's important to note that this looks different for everybody, and Buddhism is reason, meaning it's extremely important to seek out professional help if you feel that's what you need. Buddhism is not an alternative to mental health support, but instead a way to help you believe in yourself and manifest the wisdom and courage required to fight for your health and be the best version of you that you can be. Before we start, I'll present you with this thought from my Buddhist mentor, Daisaku Ikeda, from a book called The New Human Revolution. He writes, Medical science objectively analyzes the causes of illness and treats them based on what it finds. In contrast, Buddhism focuses on comprehending life itself, where illnesses take root, seeking the internal causes of illness, and fundamentally transforming one's state of life. He goes on to explain that the alienation many people feel in contemporary culture and society, which I'll add has been exacerbated like never before this year, can produce excessive stress and psychological illness. Therefore, it's extremely important to help ourselves and each other to strengthen our inner sense of worth and well-being at the deepest level. This is a vital component of maintaining good health, and this is what chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo can help us do. He also emphasizes that it's crucial to focus on all aspects of our health, the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, in order to build a strong mental attitude and orientation towards life. In other words, the Buddhist solution to a mental health challenge begins as follows. First, we have to have a determination to be healthy because we value our life. This is what the practice of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, which is the basis of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, and applying Buddhist philosophy to our lives can help us do. Second, Buddhism is not magic. It's important to take wise action to care for ourselves in the best possible way which means that just like with any other illness, in the case of our mental health, 
If seeking professional help is necessary, then we should do so with courage, wisdom, and a determination to live the greatest possible life, undefeated by any circumstance or symptom. All that said, let's move into part one and meet Mindy and Bora. Do keep in mind that they by no means represent the entire field of mental health professionals, which is as varied in its modes of treatment as it is in the types of training providers can have. These are simply two takes on it. Mindy Milam is a licensed clinical social worker based in New Orleans, Louisiana, and when I called her up, she explained to me that her career and life were severely impacted by Hurricane Katrina. So prior to Katrina, I specialized in grief and in trauma, and then found myself in Hurricane Katrina's aftermath getting to put into practice everything I had ever taught clients about grief and trauma. It really transformed both how I did my private practice, how I approached therapy, and it also absolutely impacted how I recovered from my own losses because overnight I lost my business, I lost my home, I lost my city and community. I was in a food stamp line and just had no idea. I had never thought that my life at that point, that I would uh, be homeless and in a church line for free clothes. In January 2007, several years after her experience with Hurricane Katrina, she was introduced to the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, which teaches a holistic approach to health and overcoming the effects of trauma. Since her training there, she has shifted the focus of her practice to what she describes as helping people access their resilience and capacities. There's so many different ways that you can approach mental health. So we have the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is needed if somebody's going to be reimbursed for psychotherapy for insurance companies, they have to have a diagnosis. So that looks at people's functioning through this lens of something being wrong and list. If you have this, 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 then you qualify for this diagnosis. I think another approach to looking at mental health issues is how well does somebody feel like they're functioning? How, how much do they like themselves? What is their self-talk? What do they say to themselves? How are their relationships, both intimate relationships and social relationships? How well are they doing if they're in school or if they're working? Um, or what are they doing to feel like they're leading a contributory life? This, she explains, can be assessed by looking at somebody's ability to manage their emotions. She describes mental health as the ability for an individual to successfully navigate emotional challenges as they arise, which includes things as concrete as how they are taking care of themselves, food, sleep, exercise, all of the basics, and their orientation to responding to life's challenges, which are plentiful and inevitable. In our culture, sometimes people don't really have the tools to manage one really basic part of being human, which is to manage emotions and to navigate different emotions. Sometimes people will come to therapy and say, I'm so depressed. And as we talk, it turns out they're actually grieving. There's a big difference between grieving and being depressed, although certainly there can be some overlap in how, what people are presenting with, what kind of symptoms they might be experiencing. Over the years, I'd say people have come to seek therapy for reasons like depression or anxiety, 
um, for life transitions. Perhaps somebody's going through a divorce, perhaps someone got fired, they've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, they're facing a life-threatening illness. Sometimes people can identify that they are experiencing low self-esteem. They're uh, perfectionistic and extremely self-critical. Sometimes people seek therapy because they're engaging in harmful behaviors, cutting, burning, putting themselves at risk. Sometimes people are coming to therapy because they have identified, I have a problem with substance abuse versus use, where that feels like it's kind of manageable. Um, People may come dealing with coming out, with just discovering who they really are, developing more confidence. So really covering the gamut of life's challenges can send people looking for a space where they ideally feel absolutely welcomed and deeply listened to in our culture. That's something that people don't often experience of really feeling like they're listened to. When it comes to diagnosing mental illness, she explains that sometimes a diagnosis can make people feel limited or stuck, but at other times it can help them understand what it is they're experiencing and what treatment options are available to them. When people can un have a name to what they're suffering with, what they're struggling with, it can help them feel more hopeful because they can feel like, oh, somebody knows what this is. Therefore, maybe someone knows what to do about it. And sometimes I think people hear a diagnosis and feel really bound by that diagnosis. Like, oh, this somehow limits me. And so I would always urge someone, no matter what their diagnosis is, continue to look towards your capacity Continue to look at the things that help you develop your strengths. Think about a muscle. The, the potential is there. I may have the potential for a great bicep muscle, but unless I do things that draw that potential out, it's not going to just pop out because I wish it. So it's where we can look at the challenges we have as opportunities to draw out our potential versus just passively accepting, oh, this doctor or this mental health professional has given me this diagnosis, therefore I'm stuck with it and there's nothing I can do. There is always something we can do. Throughout my conversation with Mindy, I was so encouraged by her fundamental belief, which she attributes to her Buddhist practice, that everyone has unlimited potential, no matter how they might be feeling right now or what diagnosis they might have. An amazing example of exactly this is Bora Kolak, the psychiatrist I'm about to introduce you to. He's currently a resident in psychiatry based in New York City, but his journey into the mental health field began with his experiences as a patient. Here's the summary. While he had a great childhood and graduated from a top school, Harvard University, after he came home from college, his lifelong struggle with self-confidence spiraled into some difficult mental health challenges. I ended up at home after college, sort of on my parents' couch. Um, um, even though I was like still very idealistic and, and um, kind of had like grand dreams for myself, the flip side was that I was also uh, a li little more cynical and disillusioned and... Um, kind of lacking um, confidence in myself. 
um, and as um, well, definitely lacking confidence in myself, and, and things started sort of spiraling out of control from there, I think. He found himself getting into various forms of legal trouble, such as for disorderly conduct and later a DUI, and his parents, who were extremely worried about him, had him hospitalized for depression. Um, again, I was later, you know, involuntarily hospitalized uh, on a few occasions, and so you know, what started off as just sort of this, like, uh, lack of, uh, you know, self-confidence, you know, quickly sort of devolved into this, um, you know, really painful uh, depression where I felt like it was just so, so stuck and I couldn't get out of it. And then as each year sort of went by, that that uh, feeling of hopelessness and giving up just sort of got deeper and deeper and sense of, like, wasted time and regret just became sort of all-consuming. Um and, um, you know, and that's really where I, I found that this, uh, this Buddhist practice has been so, so um, fundamentally transformational. I mean, one of the first things that I maybe uh, read from uh, Daisaku Okeda was, um, you know, this quote that um, those who have suffered the most, you know, have the right to become the happiest. Having felt for so long like he had just given up on his life and dreams, Chanting and being around other Buddhists who encouraged him to take action toward his dreams anyway gave him the courage to send in just one application to a medical school, which he got into. And then everything began to change. He eventually studied psychiatry and got into the mental health field much later in life than he had ever anticipated. But because of his journey, he's now able to relate to his patients in a way that comes straight from the heart. You know, I think... Uh... You know, for every person who's depressed or anxious or even, you know, uh, going through a psychotic break or uh, a manic episode, there's, you know, there's a completely individual story there. You know, we like to, in, in, in mental health field and in psychiatry, try to categorize things, you know, for the sake of, you know, guiding our treatment. But I really f feel like every person's sort of journey is, is very unique. And in my own case, um, you know, I was sort of on a spiritual sort of quest or something of that nature. And I remember actually my first hospitalization, I mentioned to the psychiatrist that, you know, I was like, um, you know, following my dreams and like kind of writing down my dreams and really interested in spirituality. And after like a five minute interview, he diagnosed me with paranoid schizophrenia. And I remember how traumatic that was, um, and then, uh, I was prescribed these, you know, heavy-duty psychiatric medications, which caused me to gain weight, um, and, and you know, I felt locked in, um, you know, this this hospital, like, and couldn't get out. And you're trying to uh, sort of convince everybody that you're uh, okay or, or better than you are, and sometimes that has the opposite effect. You know, thankfully, I had very supportive parents. Um, but, you know, um, it definitely gave me a window onto what that experience is like on the, on the, uh, on the side of being a patient, which I, I think helps me to really have empathy, of course, you know, for um, uh, patients that I'm treating uh, now. Of course, these types of experiences can be compounded by issues that are social and systemic, such as access to quality health care and the education and resources to be able to advocate for yourself in the healthcare system. But what I found most interesting in my conversations with both Mindy and Bora are that when it comes to pursuing health, a great equalizer, according to Buddhism, 
is the willingness to believe in the infinite potential of each human life, and especially your own. Of course, there's a biochemical aspect to all of this. I think, uh, you know, psychiatry um, in general has a very, a lot of usefulness in terms of acutely treating certain, um, you know, certain kinds of, of mental illness, particularly, you know, psychotic episodes or manic episodes where people might be a danger to themselves. And in terms of depression, you know, when people are suicidal, it can really um, provide us a, a space um, where they can be safe. I mean, I, I definitely went through a, a deep depression. The thing about depression, though, is that I, I've come to see it as sort of like um, an anxiety as well, which are, you know, the two, the two most prevalent in mental health conditions in our country and in the world as really a, a sort of a disease of like lack of connection in various ways, you know, um, and not just interpersonal connection. I think it's also a sense of like, you know, lack of connection to meaning or purpose or a lack of connection to our own trauma experience, a lack of connection to, to spirituality, um, you know, various forms of, of lack of connection, I think. But, um, you know, the reality is, of course, uh, you know, um, and this is, uh, you know, one of the wonderful things about Buddhism that has really sort of clarified my own view is that, you know, mind and body are one, of course, ultimately, right? So, um, so it's really uh, impossible to uh, extricate the, uh, the biological material brain science from this, you know, vast universe of what we call the social determinants, determinants of health, um, and I think there's a danger in sort of being overly reductionistic and seeing everything's in terms of just neurons and, uh, you know, uh, chemical misfirings. I asked both Mindy and Bora what they gained from their Buddhist practice and how it impacted their experience or perspective, both as recipients of therapy and practitioners in the field. Here's what they said. I think from when I first started chanting and studying um, Buddhism, that I could see how it enhanced my skills and as a therapist and my perspective. They're so compatible. Nietzsche and Buddhism talks about inherent potential in all of us, and that's what therapy strives to activate for people as well. It just it goes about it in a different way. And as somebody, as I said, I experienced a lot of my own trauma. So as somebody who had been a consumer of therapy for many years, what Buddhism did was help me heal parts of me that therapy never reached. Because therapy, as useful and as fabulous as I think it is, and it's something that I've spent decades doing now with people, therapy touches our thoughts, helps us manage our emotions. Therapy doesn't really address things like karma. According to Nature in Buddhism, of the many causes of illness, the most difficult to cure are those caused by our karma, or the myriad causes and effects we've accumulated over lifetimes, which are impossible to understand, but can still be changed if you practice the Lotus Sutra. This is one of the most important teachings of Nichiren in Buddhism, which says that karma can be changed by chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, the title of the Lotus Sutra, and striving to live in accord with its teachings, especially its central teaching, that you have unlimited potential for courage, wisdom, and compassion in your life, and so does every other living being. Nothing in my life fundamentally changed, right, until I really started practicing, until I started chanting. And I think one aspect that, that was so key in that process of change was 
you know, this daily practice that we have in this Buddhism, which is so unique that, um, that really, um, incorporates, you know, study, but also this visceral, you know, um, practice of chanting and then brings things together with, you know, a community of, of like-minded practitioners and also a, a teaching from, from um, you know, uh, a person who we, you know, take as a mentor to really, you know, answer our deepest questions. So it really is able to sort of combine all these elements to really uh, get our lives moving on all cylinders. And so I was thinking about this question of like mental health, right? So, you know, um, President Ikeda has, has mentioned at various times the definition of health from the World Health Organization is not just the absence of illness, but the, uh, you know, a state of, you know, physical, uh, emotional and social fulfillment or, or something along those lines. The ultimate mental health is in some ways this like sort of life condition of absolute happiness that we talk about in this Buddhism. It's not just the absence of uh, illness. I think it's actually, you know, really being able to, to thrive and to really fulfill our potential. Now let's move on to part two and hear an inspiring example of exactly how this works in an individual human life. Before we begin, a gentle warning that we will be speaking about PTSD and some abuse here. So if that's triggering for you, you can pause and come back when you feel up for listening to it, or just skip to the next section by checking the show notes for the timestamp for part four. Yuko Miyama is a young woman who I actually knew in college, but I never could have imagined that she went through the things that she did. When you meet her, she seems like one of the sweetest, most joyful people, which as you'll see, she is. But of course, when it comes to mental health issues, it's not always easy to see them or show them to others. So for me, like my mental illness runs in my dad's side of the family. So for as far as I know, for generations, we've struggled from all forms of abuse. And because they all grew up in Japan, culturally, we just don't talk about it. So it's as if abuse or trauma doesn't even exist at all. It's just like one form or way to raise your child. So um, I was talking to my dad and I realized that he went through such unimaginable struggles at such a young age. So naturally, as he had three kids, and I just remember him being so loving, but also really, really scary. She shared with me that she experienced some pretty serious trauma as a child that she somehow managed to completely block out of her memory during most of her young adult years. And it took me years, years and years to admit that my dad could have been violent towards me and my sisters growing up. And so I guess, actually, I lived in so much fear and anxiety in my childhood that I couldn't recall a huge portion of my childhood, so any bad memories until I turned about 23. And this is when I decided to take my Buddhist practice seriously. Hearing her say this reminded me of the teaching that Buddhism and chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to the Gohonzon, which is the scroll that serves as something of a spiritual mirror for our enlightened life, is all about seeing yourself clearly. In essence, when you chant, you can see yourself, your delusions, and your potential so much more clearly. And if you can see your suffering clearly, you can summon the courage to do something about it. In Yuko's case, at the beginning of her practice, she started experiencing confusing symptoms, severe flashbacks, worsening depression, and a glaring lack of self-worth. Then, repressed childhood memories started to come back. 
I think I can recall now in about third or fourth grade, I'd be walking home from school and I hated that dread, that dreadful walk. I called it the walk of doom because no matter what kind of great day I had at school, I knew that as soon as I reached home, things could just go out the window. And by out the window, I mean literally, like in an accidental rage, like sometimes he almost threw me out the window on the two-story home. And so that was just how it was every day. But this became like normalized. And when things were really good, things were awesome. And my dad especially was really loving. But then suddenly I could make like one mistake and everything could go upside down. Like tables would be flipping, turning. So I guess in an effort to make sense of everything, my child, my brain made up this story that I must inherently be be a bad kid. That's why I'm getting yelled at all the time. So if I was a good kid, if I became a good kid, then my parents would love me. So I have to work really hard and I want to be loved. And so I felt like that's what my whole childhood was about, trying to be this good kid so I could be loved. And um, I guess that because my life felt so threatened at times, like I could die, I decided somehow my brain, the brain is just so powerful to to forget all the bad memories altogether. So then I really had no recollection whatsoever of any of those events until 23. It's worth explaining here, especially if you're new to the practice, that in Nichiren Buddhism, you don't have to chant explicitly about something in order to begin to resolve it. Instead, you can chant about whatever is in front of you or whatever is in your heart at the moment, and your life will naturally open up to whatever is the best next step to take for your absolute happiness. For Yuko, in her early 20s, that was looking for a job and figuring out what she wanted to do with her life. But um, in fact, I kept chanting, but I couldn't come up with anything. And that actually made me even more depressed. And I realized that, my gosh, like I actually don't fundamentally believe that my life is worthy and that I could do something. And that's the exact opposite of what Buddhism teaches me. Buddhism teaches that we have supreme value and the greatness of all living beings, right? So then the sadness just started to get so intense, but I just kept chanting. And then I suddenly, it was crazy. It was almost like, sudden but I started to recall like bits and pieces of my childhood and I thought I was going insane because I would tell myself like that didn't happen I'm just making it up but my sisters would be the ones to confirm that those events happened and you know up until then I thought I had a perfect childhood but as she looked deeper she realized just how many things she had buried and I think depression also started for me when I was about 11 I remember that's the first time. I think I was turning 12 and then I didn't want my birthday to be celebrated because I didn't feel worthy of being born. And this depression just got worse and worse as I grew older. And especially in high school, it became pretty intense. But I also blamed myself for being depressed. I had this image like I have to be this perfect, happy child. So what's wrong with me? And no one's going to love me if I'm always so depressed. So whenever I felt sadness or like self-pity, I resorted to harming myself. And it's kind of twisted now that I think about it. But it's I think when my dad stopped hitting me, I took it on my own hands to harm myself when I made a mistake. Like, oh, no one's doing that. So I have to take it. uh, I have to teach myself a lesson. And I know it's so twisted, but. That's really all I knew. 
and it made perfect sense to me at that time. And so, of course, I had anxiety, I had depression, and this negative self-talk wherever I went that was just occurring in my head. And then also um, and a desire to feel good about myself and also probably attributed to like childhood sexual abuse, which happened outside of my family. I developed an eating disorder, which almost became life-threatening. And this had lasted almost over a decade. While Yuko had never explicitly chanted about these things, when she started practicing Buddhism consistently, she immediately realized that she had to start taking some kind of action to care for herself. There's few times in my life when it would get so bad, especially around this time when I was about 23. Um, and then the, when the memories started coming back, there was just this constant replay of the scenes and the words that were said to me like all day long, no matter what I was doing, whenever I was trying to go to sleep or trying to eat, it just scenes would just be circling in my head all day long. And then I would get so much anxiety that I felt like I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't even answer calls. And there was times when it felt like I just couldn't feel anything more emotionally. Like everything just turned black and white. Like I couldn't find joy in anything that I used to feel joy in. And then I cried so much. There's no more tears left and you harm yourself enough, there's like nothing else you can do to feel better. I think that's how low it was at that time. And so I had no option but to tell somebody that I was able to trust. That's when her friends encouraged her to seek professional help, which wasn't easy for her to do, as she explained to me that often in some Asian cultures, there's a tremendous stigma attached to mental health issues, and seeking help can be seen as a sign of weakness. But that's where chanting helped her, and she used it to fight against her inner disbelief and fear every day while taking action to find a therapist. I would wake up and I would think to myself, first thing in the morning, I can never get help. Nothing is ever going to change. This is my life. And then I'd go and chant, and then somehow I would feel a little bit more hopeful. Somehow, I can't even describe it. It was like, I deserve better though. And um, so it wasn't easy, like, trying to get help. I, for anyone who's ever tried to get help, I think they know that you have to call a lot of places and get, be ready to be rejected many times, too. So it was like every day I called, like, five places, next day five places, you know, almost called, like, 20 places. But for some reason, I just decided not to give up, probably because my mental health state was so, <laughs> it was just so terrible. But then I was able to find someone who could um, help me. And I think getting professional help was the best decision of my life. I was um, finally diagnosed with PTSD. Actually, a therapist told me that I was about to split personalities. So I think thanks to my Buddhist practice, I was able to identify the things that were creating problems in my life. Instead of ignoring it, just feeling positive and happy all the time, I was able to attack the root cause of what was making me suffer and it was all these memories that I couldn't recall but now that I was older I think I had more courage to look back and to work on them and I think that's why those things started to come up at the right time. She was happy to finally have a name for what she was suffering with but at the same time it made her question what that meant for her future and she worried that she was going to be experiencing flashbacks forever. So I think that was really difficult, but then learning the tools that were created long ago that worked, 
and having the courage to apply it to my life. I think chanting really helped me find the courage to actually do it, to actually keep going to therapy. And through that, I think I changed tremendously. The first thing that started to change was how she related to other people, which in turn changed the way that she felt about herself. I think when you start to chant, you're actually chanting that I am worthy, right? And that I am amazing just as I am. So even if you don't believe it, that's what you're repeating every day. And then Buddhist philosophy, as well as Daisaku Ikeda's works, who I consider my mentor, really continues to tell me that my life is great, continuously. And so that's not what I grew up with. That's not what I believed about myself for so long. But as I made Buddhism a part of my life, I started to feel that, no, I didn't, sorry. I started to talk to myself differently, right? And then I started to feel differently about myself because the way that I was talking to myself was much nicer. And then the way that I feel about myself changed. And then I started to gravitate towards things that were naturally happy and good and positive. And I started to also reject things that were not making me happy. So I didn't feel like harming myself fit or match the way that I felt about myself anymore. When I asked her how she was able to keep chanting while going through therapy and facing these incredibly difficult aspects of her life head on for the very first time, in other words, why she didn't give up, she shared with me that there were days where she felt like she just couldn't chant and instead would study passages from Ikeda or Nichiren Daishonin for encouragement, which kept her going. One of her favorites from Ikeda reads, When we encounter obstacles in the course of our Buddhist practice, we in fact find ourselves at a momentous crossroads, a vital juncture that will decide whether we open the gateway to attaining Buddhahood forever through strong faith or close off the path to happiness by forsaking our faith. I know that sounds strict, but faith, which simply means believing in yourself, requires strictness. That one really encouraged me a lot because whenever I felt like triggered or I felt like ashamed, I would tell myself, right? This is my, this is my vital juncture. This is my opportunity. Am I going to win over myself today or am I gonna let my negativity win over? And let's be real, like I lost so many times. I was like, oh, negativity won today. But then for some reason, I think it was support of so many people in my life that I was able to find the courage to say, like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to grit my teeth and continue to live on. I'm going to continue believing that there's something that I can do in my life. And doing that over and over, I can always just lift myself up a lot faster than I used to. Now, she explained, when depression hits, and it still does sometimes, she doesn't feel like she has to stay at home for weeks or harm herself or engage in any of the other destructive behaviors she had come to rely on for so long. This, in turn, gave her the courage to address her relationship with her dad, first by being honest with him, then by finding the space in her heart to understand why he had behaved the way that he did, and finally, by opening her heart so wide that she could start to accept that even he had changed over time, and together they could create a new relationship. And of course, even today, it's not perfect. We still get into arguments. But before, I used to have such intense anger. And as a teenager, I used to feel like if my dad ever passed away, I would never cry for him, you know? That's how much anger, though, and resentment that I had. 
and I just couldn't let go of it for many, many years. But then somehow, must be because of my Buddhist practice and I started to feel good about myself and appreciative of a lot of things that happened, the good things that happened in my life. Somehow, I started to suddenly feel appreciation. And it was like I ignored how I felt about my dad for so long. And then suddenly one day I was like, well, maybe I should just chant for my dad. And I did. And what came out of my life was just immense appreciation. I just couldn't stop crying. I just felt so appreciative that he was my dad. And I realized he loved me to the best way that he knows how. Like he didn't have the best role models growing up, but he really treated me and my sisters with love and compassion too. I just couldn't see that side. And yeah, then that changed. He's like, you can't even tell that he was ever angry. He's just such a smiley, happy person. And that's how he is at home now too. So it was just incredible, like how much he has changed and how much I've changed. And yeah, now I feel like I can have a relationship with him again. Just start over again almost, right? Have a father-daughter relationship. And I feel like he's really um, my cheerleader, someone who really cares about me. And I never thought I'd be able to think that way or feel that way towards my dad, like ever. Yuko's story really showed me that if we're willing to believe in ourselves against all odds and use the resources available to us to help us do so, even if it feels like the most difficult thing in the world, everything in our environment can change and we can learn how to navigate even the most trying mental health challenges. They may not go away entirely, but they also don't need to control our life or have any bearing on our happiness. Now let's move on to part three to understand a little bit better how to support somebody who may be struggling with mental health challenges and what Buddhism says about how to chant about it. Maya Gunasaharan is currently the Young Women's Leader for SGI USA, and I called her to ask a little bit more about the Buddhist perspective on mental health, but also share a bit of her own story, as for many years she's been learning how to support her partner who struggles with depression. Uh, we've been together now 10 years, and I think just like one year after we started dating, um, he really fell into um, you know deep depression. And honestly, at first, I didn't really know what was going on. And I certainly couldn't understand firsthand what he was experiencing. But as I chanted, I could see very clearly how actually tendencies of depression, as well as anxiety and addiction were a part of my family. In the case of her partner, who's now her husband, his depression resulted in the loss of several jobs. You know, in fact, the way I think his depression often manifested um, led it to be quite difficult um, to even find the right care, um, the right medication. And so, you know, this is like an experience of many, many years. And of course, ongoing, I think this will always be a part of our lives. But one thing I found and has been um, so incredible is really that Number one, every time we've chanted Nam Myoho we've been able to make some kind of headway. So for example, you know, we really chanted to find the best care or the best therapist for him. And we found a wonderful therapist. And another thing we chanted for was for him to find the best medication for him. And because he had been through a number of medications that he didn't like and that he didn't feel were the best for his life. So we chanted about that. And I think now, you know, many years later, um, what I found is that for me, 
continuing to believe that this person has some important mission that only he can fulfill has been the key to sticking by him and not giving up. The journey forward was not easy, but Maya explained to me that the key Buddhist concept around karma, which again are the inexplicable causes that lead us to our present circumstances, can actually become the greatest impetus for fulfilling our unique purpose or mission in life. This could look like many things, but definitely includes being able to encourage other people who might be facing the same things that we did. I find that, you know, he's able to encourage people in a way that is quite remarkable because he shows or he's able to say, yeah, I wanted to give up many times, but I persevered and and here's the outcome, right? And so that gives me so much confidence, like just watching him encourage people. And then for me, I think, I'm learning, continuing to learn how to never give up on a person, right? To continue, no matter how my, how it may seem like we're taking steps back or we're just seeing the same thing happen over and over again. In the grand scheme of things, I can see how we are changing things. And so I think I'm learning how to never give up on a person. And I think my compassion is growing each day. Everything in Buddhism comes down to changing yourself in order to see a change in your environment. In terms of supporting someone who's struggling with mental health issues, she explained that a great place to start is just by chanting for their happiness and for your own. From there, we can gain the wisdom to understand what it is that we might need to change in order to better take care of ourselves and our loved ones. There's no universal answer on the action side of this. At times, it may look like developing more compassion for someone. At other times, it may involve seeking help yourself. And still at other times, it may simply mean having the wisdom to know how to navigate your daily life so that you can take care of yourself without being consumed by another person's struggles. To watch, you know, a person who I love so close to me suffer or, you know, experience, experience depression one thing, I mean, is just like the, the, like the feeling of watching him suffer and feeling like I don't know how to support him. I don't know how I can help him. You know, I, I almost like just wished I had like something I could just like help him like quickly. Like I just want it to be over almost. Like I just wish I could like help him snap out of it, so to speak. Um, so in a sense, feeling powerless, like, I'm watching this person suffer and there's nothing I can do, right? That was, I think, the biggest part of it. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I, I think his tendency um, was to isolate even from me. And so in the first four years of our relationship, we were long distance. And so when he would feel depressed, he wouldn't pick up the phone for me or for anyone else for that matter. And so in those moments, I mean, you can only imagine where my mind is going. I'm wondering if he's okay. I'm wondering, does he still want to be with me? You know, all sorts of questions are arising for, I think a lot of the struggle for me was pausing for a second and thinking about what he was going through was actually really important for me. Many days, like he would just wake up and we'd have breakfast and then he'd spend the rest of the day in bed or he would like set out to apply for jobs and then at the end of the day share with me like I haven't done anything or I didn't apply to any jobs and I think that sort of continued pattern 
even though like he so badly wanted to do something different, that continued pattern would then lead him to feel like this is going to be my reality forever. In those times, having people I could lean on for support was really important. And just taking all of my feelings, all of my even feelings of powerlessness, going and chanting about those, chanting about them helped me figure out what I could do in those moments. How can I become a person who he feels like he can open up to? She also reminded me that Buddhism teaches that no suffering will last forever, which is encapsulated in a beautiful letter from Nichiren Daishonin titled, Winter Always Turns to Spring. He writes, Those who believe in the Lotus Sutra are as if in winter, but winter always turns to spring. Never from ancient times on has anyone seen or heard of winter turning back to autumn. The sutra reads, if there are those who hear the law, then not a one will fail to attain Buddhahood. Based on these two beliefs, that no suffering will last forever, and that every person has immense potential for happiness and a unique purpose only they can fulfill, as friends and caretakers, we can use our Buddhist practice to cultivate the ability to become great listeners. There's a passage that I want to read, if that's okay. And it's from Discussions on Youth, and it's on page 27. And uh, yeah, Sensei says, even if you think you're hopeless and incapable, I know you're not. I have not the slightest doubt that each of you has a mission. Though others may disparage you, please know that I respect you. I believe in you. No matter what circumstances you now face, I have absolute confidence that a wonderful future awaits you. Each time you fall down, just get back up. If you can pick yourself up, you can move forward. And so... Actually, this is, you know, encouragement to youth, but I think it applies to people at any stage in their lives. Because I think there are two things that at least that I take away from this passage. Um, number one, I think it's like this notion that starting from where we are, like that's wherever we are is where we are. And as long as we can take, you know, a step forward, that's most important. Um, no matter how many times we need to make a fresh determination, right? That's okay. Um, and then also I think it's, it depicts this spirit that we learn in Buddhism, which is to live from this moment on. So let's move on to part four and synthesize some takeaways based on Buddhist wisdom for anyone dealing with mental health challenges right now. Here are 10 concrete things to take away from this episode as told to me by Maya, Mindy, and Bora. They're hopefully universal enough that anyone struggling with any sort of mental health issue should be able to apply it to your life. First, it's important to understand that health is not the absence of sickness. Instead, it's living with a spirit to always move forward no matter what we might be suffering with right now, and having the spirit to take great care of ourselves. This includes the basics, eating well, sleeping well, exercising, and if you're Buddhist, chanting every day. Buddhism views health as a universal desire of all people. And so not only, right, is it a desire of people, but essentially we really believe that it's an essential element of human rights. And at the same time, Buddhism recognizes that illness or sickness is one of the most basic sufferings of people, right? So these universal sufferings being birth, aging, sickness, and death. So actually our Buddhist practice really exists to help people relieve the sufferings that are associated with sickness or illness and live a most fulfilling life. So I think if I had to sum it up, I would say that, you know, Buddhism teaches that health is not simply a matter of the absence of illness or sickness, but health 
means living a life, right? Or good health means living a life that's full of constant challenge and constant creativity. My mentor, Daisaku Ikeda, puts it beautifully when he says that a life of true health is a prolific life that is always moving forward, opening up fresh new vistas. And it's about fostering this kind of unbe unbeatable spirit, which supplies the power for us to keep advancing. Second, there is always something we can do about our circumstances and our health. There is always some action we can take. One of the things I love in this Buddhism, when we chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, Myo, one translation of that word is to revive. And so I think about the ways in which people who are crippled by illness, mental illness, physical illness, still there's something we can do about that through chanting. And that when we chant to revive our potential, that that is so empowering and important to be able to have tools that we can use. Third, don't be afraid to get professional help if that's what you need. Doing so is actually a great act of respect for your own life. And Buddhism is a philosophy based on respecting the dignity of every life. When somebody seeks therapy when they're suffering, they are taking responsibility for themselves in that moment by reaching out by saying, I need help. And it can be hard. So I, I think a couple of keys can be pers perseverance, persistence, not giving up, being willing to change beliefs about oneself. Daisaku Ikeda wrote a quote that has stayed with me that has said, sometimes life is a moment by moment struggle between our positive and negative selves. So we believe that everyone has strengths and everyone has weaknesses and challenges. And the, the most important battle is with ourselves. Fourth, what you can see right now does not represent all you are capable of doing, seeing, feeling, experiencing, or contributing. Chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is the way to see yourself and your circumstances clearly. So it's always the best starting point if you're able to chant. I remember one time I was on an airplane leaving DC and this DC, it was gray and all you could see was gray and sleet. And I got in the airplane and as we rose above the clouds, all of a sudden there was blue expanse everywhere. And I thought on that plane, if I had trusted my eyes, I wouldn't have believed this was possible. But with the right tools, I was able to rise above the blanket of fog and sleet. So chanting builds our life condition and allows us to rise above our own limited thinking that's rooted in our suffering. So of course, what we're seeing is distorted. Fifth, if you do seek professional help, do your best at it. Based on chanting, bring the greatest determination you can muster to your treatment. And at the same time, as we learn from Yuko, don't be hard on yourself if you fall down along the way. I think for therapy to be successful for people, there ideally is a willingness to do things that can feel really hard and really different because part of what many people are also doing in therapy is breaking habits. There might be a habitual way of talking to ourselves, of being judgmental, of being critical, and to be able to break those habits, it, it takes effort. Sixth. Wherever you are right now is the best place to start. I think, you know, one thing I really want to emphasize 
here is study because I know hearing from, you know, many members and my, even my own family members, you know, sometimes chanting can be challenging when a person is experiencing mental health challenges or difficulties. For example, right, if they're experiencing anxiety, then chanting can actually um, be a trigger. And so I think it's really important that we remember we don't, we shouldn't feel pressure to do so in those times, reading even one line from the writings of Nichiren Daishonin or guidance from Sensei, we can be reminded of the true nature of our lives. And that, you know, this true nature is essentially that we have this beautiful mission that only we can fulfill. And furthermore, that those of us who uphold the mystic law, right, or encounter the mystic law, that actually it's our destiny to become happy. So reading that kind of encouragement can help us change the narrative about our lives even if gradually, right, little by little, we can start to believe that in fact our lives are the most dignified treasures of all. Seventh, small victories will add up to great confidence, happiness, and transformation. And one thing um, that somebody impressed upon me early on uh, in my practice was this kind of idea of momentum. Um, and one of the wonderful things about like being able to chant every day is you're, you're able to sort of create this momentum in your life, you know, like little victories start, you know, really accumulating. Of course, we're human beings, so we go through, you know, uh, ups and downs no matter what. So, you know, I, I, uh, I was still sort of carrying some of that heavy baggage and weight around with me for a while. But one thing I found um, was that, you know, I don't know what, you know, day it was or how many months into my practice it was. But at some point, I just found that I woke up feeling the sense of like lightness about my life and that sort of my problems were no longer so heavy anymore. Eighth, if you fall down along the way, don't give up on yourself and don't be afraid to rely on good friends, especially Buddhist friends. One thing that I will mention, you know, also the, the community within this Buddhism is so, so amazing, right? So that we have these you know, community gatherings where, you know, we can really share our experiences and, and, uh, you know, hear from people in our community, maybe who've gone through similar things or who haven't, but are always so encouraging and who will just tell you, yes, you can do it. Ninth, what you're going through right now is what makes you special and uniquely able to encourage so many people. Viewing things this way can help us appreciate our lives and get curious about how we want to live and what we want our contribution to be. So I, you know, frankly speaking, have the most admiration, honestly, and appreciation for people in my environment who, who I know are experiencing really intense difficulties because I, I see and I'm so encouraged by watching them continue to challenge, right? Continue to pick themselves up when maybe they fall in 12 times, right? They continue to pick themselves up. That gives me so much hope when I see people like that. And 10th, believe in the impossible, grounded in wisdom and a willingness to take action towards it. Because what you think is impossible may not be so impossible after all. And I think that's our goal in Buddhism is to live a life without regret. So I would always encourage someone to think about what kind of life do you want? How, what would a satisfying life look like to you? And then begin to look at the, the ways in which you may be keeping yourself bound by saying, 
No, that's not possible. No, that's not possible. You're practicing Buddhism to make what you believe is impossible possible. So I would say to someone, spend time with yourself having an honest conversation. What what would you want to be doing? And then start step by step. You know, I'm sure you've heard that quote, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. But it's the willingness to take that step and not give up and not quit just because you're tired. You just, if you need to pause, pause a minute and then go again to the next step and the next step and take yourself and your amazing life to wherever it is that you want to go with it. That's all for today's episode, which we hope you found helpful in some small way. And we'll be addressing a lot more of your requests in future episodes, which will come out every other month going forward. But if you're looking for a weekly dose of Buddhist wisdom and practical tips, SGIUSA has a new podcast called Buddhability, which you can also find on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as lots to read at buddhability.org. That show comes out every week and it features honest conversations about different aspects of our Buddhability or enlightenment and how to tap into it. And as always, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review and don't hesitate to get in touch at podcast at sgi-usa.org. 